Hello, my friends, and welcome again to the Bible Lab, the podcast where we explore major themes from every book of the Bible in order to see how each page points us to Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. I'm your host, Andy Wood. Thank you for joining me, friends. We are beginning today an examination of the book of Isaiah. Now, this is one of my very favorite books in the entire Bible. It may be my favorite book in the Old Testament, but from a Bible Lab programming perspective, uh, Isaiah is the first book of what we commonly think of as the prophets. And through the end of this second season, we will be looking, Lord willing, at Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. We will then take a break for the Christmas holidays and Thanksgiving. And then beginning, Lord willing, in January of 24, we'll look at the 12 minor prophets. So we'll be looking at men that we think of as prophets for the next several dozen episodes of the Bible app. Before we do that, I just want to remind you that when I say prophet, don't think fortune teller. Think prosecuting attorney. The job of a prophet of Yahweh was to hold up God's covenant that his people made with him at Mount Sinai and accuse them of breaking the covenant, warn them of God's coming judgment, and hold out hope for those who would respond in repentance and faith. Now, did prophets tell the future? Yes. But they told the future to verify the message, to urge people to respond right now to what they were saying. Most of what we read in the prophets, some people say up to 95% of what we read in the prophets has already been fulfilled. So we are reading the prophets to learn about our God, a God who speaks a word of judgment and a word of hope to his people. So as we always do with every book of the Bible, we want to begin by looking at a timeline. Remember, the Bible is not a made-up fairy tale story that happened once upon a time in a land far, far away. The Bible is a real story that happened to real people in real places at real times. So where are we in history? So if you can imagine a timeline moving oldest date from the left and all the way to the birth of Jesus on the right, the earliest datable event that we can say with a fair degree of confidence is the birth of Abraham in 2167 BC. All of these dates are going to be BC. As we move from the left to the right, the next thing that we come upon is what's called the patriarchal age. Now, the word patriarch means founding father or ruling father, beginning father. This is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the founding fathers of the nation of Israel. When Jacob dies, the family of Abraham has grown to be 70 people, and they are living in Egypt. They're going to be in Egypt for over 400 years. While they're in Egypt, they will multiply and grow according to God's promises in the book of Genesis, but they will also be enslaved and oppressed by the Egyptians. That oppression is going to end in 1446. In 1446, God sends Moses to lead his people out of Egypt and lead them to Mount Sinai, where he's going to make them into a nation and enter into a formal covenant with them. This happens again in 1446. They receive the Ten Commandments, and they should have taken a two-week walk up from Mount Sinai into the Promised Land, but because of their unbelief and rebellion, it takes 40 years, and the entire generation of adults who left the land of Egypt is going to perish in the wilderness. The last of these adults to perish is going to be Moses. Moses is going to give his farewell address in 1406. That's the book of Deuteronomy. And then he's going to die outside the promised land. And the people will be taken into the promised land by Joshua. Joshua is going to lead the people for 20 to 30 years, conquer the land of Canaan, and begin to settle into their inheritance. When Joshua dies, we enter into what's called the period of the judges. 
This is about 300, 350 years in Israel's history. Now, judges are not courtroom officials. They are regional military leaders that God raises up for the deliverance of his people from foreign oppression. The last judge is a man named Samuel. Samuel anoints the first king, a man named Saul. Saul reigns for 40 years, and though he looks the part of a king, he is weak in faith, and therefore God removes him as being king of his people. The second king is the king that God wants for his people, and this is King David. King David does many amazing things. He's a man after God's own heart. But the most important thing that happens to David from a biblical perspective is that God gives David an outrageous promise in 2 Samuel 7 that someone from David's family will be the king who will deliver God's people and rule for all of eternity. When David dies, his son Solomon takes the throne. Solomon reigns for 40 years. The high point of Solomon's reign is his construction of the temple in Jerusalem where the presence of Yahweh will dwell on earth. When Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam takes the throne. Rehoboam is a fool. He takes bad advice and God splits the kingdom of Israel in two. We now have two Israelite kingdoms on earth. Up north, we have the kingdom of Israel. You'll hear them called Samaria or Ephraim. And they're going to be ruled by 20 different kings from 10 different dynasties. None of these kings are going to worship Yahweh. The people are going to basically immediately go into idolatry and they're never going to turn away from that path. The northern kingdom will cease to exist in 722 BC when the kingdom of Assyria comes in and conquers and exiles them. Down south, we have the kingdom of Judah. Now, there are also 20 kings in Judah. Judah is where Jerusalem is, where the temple is, but all of these kings come from the family of David. Now, of these 20 kings, 12 of them are bad, 8 of them are good. So, a bit of a mixed bag of kings And it's because of that mixed bag and it's because of that promise that God made to David that the southern kingdom lasts about another 140 years until 586 when the Babylonians destroy the temple, destroy Jerusalem, destroy the Davidic dynasty, and take the people off into exile. Now, for the book of Isaiah, we're talking about, roughly speaking, sometime between 750 B.C. and 700 B.C., Isaiah prophesied likely in the the court of the king in Jerusalem. So he was sort of hobnobbing with the high and the mighty. So Isaiah is prophesying, roughly speaking, 25 years before the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel and 25 years after. So 750, 700 BC. Isaiah is the first book of what are called the latter prophets. Remember the, the Tanakh has three sections, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. The Nevi'im means prophets. We've looked at the former prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. We're now looking at the latter prophets. Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings were basically a chronological narrative of the history of the nation of Israel in the promised land. And now in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12, we're getting God's commentary on the events that we've just read. So let's get our bearings in the book of Isaiah. Who wrote it? A man named Isaiah. Now, I'm not going to get into this in depth in this particular podcast, uh, but I believe, and I believe with great scriptural authority here, that Isaiah wrote the entire book of Isaiah. And I'm just going to leave it at that. I think he wrote all 66 chapters. I do not believe that there are two, three, four, five, six different men writing under the pen name of Isaiah, I think this whole thing is written by Isaiah, the son of Amos. When did he write? Well, we have mentioned the first verse that he received visions and oracles in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And best we can tell, these men, like we said, reigned from about 750 to 700 BC. Where? 
Well, Isaiah prophesies from the city of Jerusalem, but as we will see, the import of his prophecies encompass all of creation. Uh, What about why? Well, two main reasons. Reason number one, we have this book to teach kings and common people about their need to trust Yahweh. It, I think the case has been made pretty convincingly to me in a great uh, commentary by Paul House, but the theme verse of the book of Isaiah is Isaiah 7, 9, where Isaiah says to King Ahaz, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. God wants to be trusted, and Isaiah is a 66-chapter meditation on that idea. God wants to be trusted when times are good and the nation is powerful, and God wants to be trusted when the nation is being attacked and no earthly power can help them. Second reason we have this book is to show that idols can do nothing, but God's servant can bear their sins, and to show that the day of Yahweh is coming. The day of the Lord is drawing near, and the day of the Lord is coming with judgment for the wicked. Not necessarily Gentiles, but anyone and everyone who will not turn from their sins and trust in Yahweh. And the day of Yahweh is coming with blessing of the new creation for the righteous. Not for the sinlessly perfect, because that is only God, but for those who trust in Yahweh's servant. So let's take a look at our first theme in the book of Isaiah. And we're going to see here today what Isaiah contributes to our knowledge of God. The most important question to ask of every text of Scripture is this. What does this teach me about God? There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. They are all about God. God is the star of every chapter, every page, every word. And we could do a lot worse than to spend the rest of our life reading Scripture, finding some truth about God, responding in worship, and then building our life around that truth. My wife and I are trying to model that for our children right now. We've got two four-year-old boys. They're twins, Elisha and Emmanuel. And every night after dinner, we read the Jesus Storybook Bible to them, and we try and find one thing that the author says about God. And we draw our boys' attention to it, and then we pray together as a family, and we praise God or thank God for that truth. And I want so much for my boys to spend all of their life doing that reading the word of God, seeing something true about God and his word, and just responding in wonder and awe. I don't only want that for my boys. I want that for me. I don't do that. I want to do that. I want you to do that. So let's do that together in the book of Isaiah. So what does Isaiah teach us about Yahweh? Well, two primary things that Isaiah contributes in a very unique way in scripture. One, Isaiah teaches us that Yahweh is the holy one of Israel. This title for God, the Holy One of Israel, is used almost exclusively by Isaiah in the Old Testament. He used it again and again and again, and almost no one else does. For example, Isaiah 12, 6, shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. Zion is another name for the city of Jerusalem. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Now, this title reflects, as you might imagine, the absolute holiness of Yahweh. Holiness is one of those words that we can use all the time without ever defining. Biblically speaking, the primary meaning of the word holiness is set apart. That Yahweh's holiness means that he is set apart. He is other. He is greater than. So here's three words to remember. When you hear the word holy, remember these three words. One, unique. Yahweh is in a class all by himself. There is no one like our God. Two, separate. 
that Yahweh is not just different, right? Like you've got different species of mammals or different species of reptiles and Yahweh is just another type of being. Yahweh is greater than us, infinitely greater than us. And third, remember that it means pure. Yahweh is utterly without sin. So by calling himself the Holy One of Israel, we are being reminded of the absolute holiness of Yahweh and therefore the mirror image of that, the seriousness of Israel's sins against this holy God. Now, reconciliation between sinners and God, that's God's ultimate goal. But you'll see in Isaiah and probably in your own life that punishment, discipline, is what God uses to bring about that reconciliation. Now, as we're going to see in later episodes, God has someone called the servant. And the servant is going to have a primary role in making this reconciliation between this holy God and this sinful people possible. But just to get a little bit ahead of ourselves, friends, it's not going to be by God lowering his standards and becoming the pretty good one of Israel or the decently moral one of Israel. God is going to find a way through his servant to redeem his people, yes, to be reconciled with his people, yes, without compromising one iota of his holiness. And God will do all of this, bring his people back to himself without compromising his holiness, ultimately, first and foremost, for his namesake, as is said so memorably in Isaiah 43, 25. As Yahweh says to his people, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God is going to find a way to forgive his people so that ultimately he will be exalted and glorified for his wisdom and grace. So Isaiah teaches us that Yahweh is the Holy One of Israel. And Isaiah also teaches us that Yahweh is the Redeemer. The idea of God being the Redeemer, it appears four times in the Old Testament outside of Isaiah, but Isaiah used it as a title for God 12 times. And all 12 of those occurrences happen in chapters 40 through 66. And that, the significance of those chapters we'll talk about later. For example, Isaiah 43, 15, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer. It also appears nine times as a verb, like the Lord will redeem you. And the point of this, God calling himself the Redeemer, talking about how I will redeem you, like in Isaiah 43, 1, is that redemption, being freed from slavery to sin, it's an act that Yahweh alone can do. Isaiah teaches us that redemption is an action carried out by Yahweh, by his sovereign grace, solely because he desires to, not something that man can do for himself. Like we don't go halvesies on our redemption. Like we contribute 50% and God's 50% or even God does 99% and we do 1%. Redemption is a, an act of sovereign grace from beginning to end. So God is holy. And God is going to find a way, again, through his servant, to redeem his people from slavery to sin and purchase them so that they can belong to him and serve him and delight in him and be blessed by him. Now, saying that God is a redeemer and that redemption has something to do with being freed from slavery, that should probably lead us to ask, why did Israel and why do we need to be redeemed? Well, the amazing thing is that it's God's holiness and our sin that created a need for redemption. Redemption from the wrath of God. Like, we don't need to be saved from the devil. We need to be saved from God's righteous wrath that we deserve because of our sin. 
But wonder of wonders, my friends, though it's our sin and God's holiness that creates the need for redemption, redemption from God's wrath, it's God himself who provides the redemption. So we've asked the question, what does this text tell me about God? A second great question to ask of every text of Scripture is, what does this teach me about myself? And Isaiah has some very important things to say about two sins that we all struggle with, pride and unbelief. And in our next episode, Lord willing, we're going to hear what Isaiah has to say to us about pride and unbelief. But for now, take up and read. God bless. God bless.